John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 180.1S0219, certificate number 53211. Kanakin. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Kanakin? Kanakin Skywalker? I don't know. Kanakin? Kanakin. Kudakin? <laughs> Mayakin? I don't know. Can you? Um, just as you like to do shows uh, on the Bible and on uh, African animals that have been imported to the Americas. Well, that's my next show. But oh, the camel. Yeah, yeah. Those are the well, two most important the, things to me. The, the Bible and uh, cocaine hippos mm-hmm. are the two most important things in my. Those are my core memories, like in that Pixar movie. You know, I like to do shows on basically nuclear bombs. How many nuclear bomb shows have I done? I'd say all your shows have been bombs. Sarbama. It was uh, not nuclear, right? No, that was oh, very, nuclear. I thought it was like the biggest conventional. See, I wasn't even listening then. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and uh, we did the mutually assured destruction. We did the uh, the missile trucks driving across oh, the right through the night. The missile trucks. Um, I feel like we've talked about, we've done more Cold War stuff than that. Right. Yes, for sure. But a lot of them were planes. Yeah, see, that's the other thing, airplanes. And this, um, this one, airplanes just figure into it tangentially. Was that hard for you? A little. But I replaced airplanes. I took the, I took the, uh, the A off of my letter sweater <laughs> and replaced airplanes. No, I, I took the... Alaska off of my letter sweater and replaced airplanes with Alaska. Wow. Another one of my favorite topics. But usually you don't get nuclear bombs and Alaska in the same sentence. Sadly, no. It's typically not. As much as we'd like to see Alaska get nuked, it has never happened. Not that. You would think that there would be all kinds of, during the Cold War, that we would have stationed a lot of nuclear weapons in alaska because it's as you know isn't that where bombers were taking off from for the the dew line or whatever i I only know what comes in dr strange love no it wasn't where they took off all those all those uh, strategic air command bombers and all the icbms they were all stationed in the in the middle west even those guys didn't want to go to alaska they're like we would rather live in topeka please alaska had some interceptors that were there to 
to intercept Russian bombers. But, you know, you can see Russia from Alaska. It's That's right there. Hear. That's what I hear. But, um, but that, was not, that was not part of the program. Typically. Do you know why? Well, I, don't I guess know. it's cold. <laughs> well, hard to get stuff up there, I guess. Well, and I think mainly because you want your stuff to be, um, you, you, you want it to have the advantage of being far enough away from the enemy that you have time to react. Mm. Um, although if all those missiles were built into Alaska and they were all nuked, nobody cares. Nobody's up there. The American people wouldn't have even noticed. Maybe that's the problem. Some we don't muskox. care enough about moose and indigenous people. That's some of our greatest shame. Well, clearly we don't. But um, I mean, not in that order. I should not have implied that. The, the moose and or indigenous people. Is that what you're trying to say? It's probably sh- in hindsight, probably should have said that in the other indigenous order. Indigenous people, people, and and then if, if moose time and remains, muskox. yes. Well, and the thing is, you could put you could put silos in places in Alaska where the, even the indigenous people didn't bother to go, but that's not how it panned out. Um, and the strategic air command bombers, the whole theory behind them was that they would be in the air all the time. They wouldn't they wouldn't scramble from Nebraska. They would be flying already, right on the edge of the failsafe line. They're just getting refueled from Nebraska for some reason. Yeah, right. Got well, <laughs> you know, the refueling planes are up there, too. I mean, that's the the, the um, Dr. Strangelove thing is that those planes were already up there, and they just had to go across this this magical line in the sky. Maybe it was just a mistake. Somebody wrote Alaska on a DOD men- menu, and then it got smeared, and somebody was like, does that say Nebraska? Nebraska? I, I think it's something Aska. Abaska? Athabaska? Athabaska? No. The... Um, as as you know from our mutually assured destruction uh promise promise uh episode suicide oath you know the um the the idea was that you uh you would keep the enemy from launching weapons because it would be so clear that you would launch your weapons yeah. and so somehow we 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 made it 50 years of uh of pointing nukes at one another. Hard to believe, but it worked. It worked. Mutual issue destruction, one for one. That's right. But I don't know if you recall, oh, surely you do, from uh, the Reagan era. The uh, Is this going to be about Punky Brewster? Because no. if so, I do remember. It's going to be about He-Man. Okay. No, it's going to be about Ronald Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative. Oh, yes. I can't believe we haven't done an entry on SDI. Yeah, we well, and this won't really be an episode on it, but it may be enough of an episode that it that we never have to do it yeah, again. Yeah, that it cancels it out. But do you remember what the what the big kerfuffle about SDI was? Yeah, it would Well, first of all, George Lucas didn't like that they were calling it Star Wars. Right. He was pissed. Copyright infringement. Um, but also the problem was that it would be too good if you had an actual shield against, uh, Russian missiles, then the whole mutually assured destruction, the veneer of safety provided by mutually assured destruction goes away. That only works if there's symmetry between the the destructive symmetry between the parties. Right. And, and SDI really concerned the Russians, even after, I'm sorry, the Soviets, even after it turned out it didn't work. Uh, well, when after the the Soviet Union collapsed, we discovered that they were genuinely concerned about this lack of of uh, mutually dis- assured destruction, and they complained 
pretty loudly at the time saying this was destabilizing. I remember at the time just thinking, oh, you think our weapons are too good? Yeah. Oh, is that our fault that we do. made our weapons better than your weapons? Do, 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 do. Apparently, I was a real cold warrior in the, uh, in the mid-'80s. Ronald Reagan uh, was a real cold warrior, but he did not believe in mutually assured destruction. He thought it was a bad—he thought it was bad, a bad plan. Do you think it, he thought it was— um, Bad assured destruction or bad for short? Bad, uh, big audio dynamite. <laughs> yeah, he thought it was big audio dynamite. <laughs> big aerial dynamite. Uh, he be- we don't we didn't call him this at the time, but he was an he was a uh, a proponent of nuclear disarmament. Um, although that's not how he advertised it, because that wouldn't have been popular with his base. Well, he inherited some disarmament treaty, uh, tr- uh, treaties that he continued to work on. I remember he those did. 80s era summits where they would all come out and he and Andropov would walk out of a hangar in in uh, Reykjavik and say, good news, fewer ner- nukes <laughs> in Turkey or something. Yeah, that's right. Shaking hands and promising we're going to eliminate this category of right. nuclear Now we can only bomb. destroy the Earth 600 times over instead of 700 uh, fortunately for us, uh, mutually assured destruction was not really threatened by the strategic defense initiative because this didn't really make the papers, uh, maybe loudly enough at the time, but none of the technologies proposed by the strategic defense initiative were anywhere close to being usable. Yes. I mean, there have been tests subsequently, you know, even a decade or so after Reagan that all failed miserably, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Well, uh, the thing about SDI was using missiles to intercept missiles was a very small part of the SDI funding. Oh, yeah. It was all real Elon Musky stuff. Um, so not, work. not Edmund Muskie. Uh, in- including particle beam <gasps> lasers, uh, lasers yeah. um, all kinds of Some, high energy somebody physics. Somebody saw Moonraker. And um, none of that stuff, although SDI sort of... Uh, like supercharged research into that stuff. Cause I'm sure that wasn't even existing tech. It was like, let's pour a ton of money into particle beams and see if we can come up with one that stops missiles. That's what it was. And the answer turned out to be no. Well, and a lot of the stuff that, uh, that resulted from it, uh, a lot of our supercomputing air fryer technology, air, air fryers, hoverboards, slip electric and sli- bicycles, slip and slides all came from started at SDI. That's crazy. Um, uh, SDI morphed into a doctrine called Brilliant Pebbles. Wait, are you serious? Yeah, Brilliant Pebbles. And Brilliant Pebbles were going to be this sort <laughs> of system of air of satellites that were all going to be real little and they were going to, they were each one of them going to be responsible for some, taking out some. The thing you have to know about these satellites is they're as small as pebbles, <laughs> but they're very bright. They're Super up. brilliant. Does that mean like they're smart? Is it like saying it's a smart bomb or is it brilliant in the sense that they're glowing? Well, the brilliance because brilliant no, pebble sounds like some I don't think they're sounds like some eighties toy where you put little you put little um, gray pebbles in water and they grow into uh, yeah, right. a sea monkey house or something. Yeah, it's pop rocks in Dr Pepper. <laughs> That's right. The thing about shooting down enemy missiles. What is it? What is it? I've wondered for years what the thing about that is. Here's the thing about it. It did not start with a strategic defense initiative. It was we were working on ways to do it all along. Um, George Washington himself thought. 
Even before there the were... The rocket's red glare <laughs> could be stopped by another uh, blue glare of a different kind of That's rocket. That's exactly right. The, uh, it, in World War II, they discovered um, that anti-aircraft fire was not very efficient or accurate. Uh, yeah. in, in January of 1941, during the height of the Blitz, uh, the British defenders... Uh, of London and and uh, surrounding parts, fired forty nine thousand anti aircraft shells and shot down twelve German airplanes. Twelve out of forty nine thousand. That's over four thousand shells per shot down craft. Yeah, your odds are about one in forty one hundred. Yeah, so that's not. Um, that's not very. That's, that's even how it's presented in movies. You yeah. see the you see the stuff just going off all around you, and nobody seems to actually care particularly. Uh, of the four thousand that that, um, I mean four thousand per aircraft, only one of them has to hit the aircraft. That's four thousand ninety nine shells that I guess just fly and land in the dirt somewhere else or land on somebody's house. I mean it's. Pretty, oh, is that true? Well, they have to go somewhere. They don't just keep going up into space. They don't go up to heaven. I assumed that they went into space. Am I am I wrong about this? You're do wrong. I need do I need to Google? No, they reach the apex of a parabola and then they fall to earth. That makes sense. So what happens? They fall to earth and sometimes explode and sometimes bury themselves deep in the ground. So all those, you know, all those um World War II era movies where they're finding unexploded bombs. I always assumed they would be enemy bombs, but some of them could just be your own anti-aircraft shells yeah. in your roof. Oh, well, so uh, so fragmentary anti-aircraft shells go up and actually explode at altitude. So right. then it's they're up there exploding and making black puffs, and then they yeah. shower the ground with little fragments of... of brilliant pebbles. Sh- brilliant pebbles, right. Um, so I should, I should say that a, that a lot of them actually did keep going up to heaven. If you believe heaven is 30,000 feet. Or if you believe that they have a soul, which yeah. goes to heaven as soon as it blows up into fragments. The Germans were better at shooting down airplanes than the British. Uh, that's not very patriotic to say. They, sh- they, they managed to only shoot 2,800 shells per B-17 that they shot down. Still. Spoiler alert, it did not affect the outcome of the war. Yeah, they could have got that up a little higher, but they didn't. They still lost. So at the end of the war, there was... Uh, there was a real sense of this isn't working, the the anti-aircraft shells, and also with the advent of jet aircraft. Yeah, I mean you're, you're not going to you're not shooting those at a V two. No, they're going to. You already had to lead the the airplanes way way out uh, in front just because it took time for the shell to get up there. But a, but a jet aircraft, you're not going to you're never going to hit it. It's not going to be in the space long enough. And so because this was the dawn of missile times missile technology um by before the war was even over uh research was ongoing um to develop a, a anti-aircraft missile defense system because we assumed as you always do that the that the current technology would last forever and we would need to be shooting down en- enemy aircraft delivering yeah. bombs and because the soviets didn't develop a uh, nuclear bomb until 1949 there was that period in the middle where we weren't even really worried about nukes we were still trying to intercept 
what would then be jet bombers dropping bombs. Yeah. And the Soviets never really even made jet bombers. They they just had those turboprop bombers. But still. We didn't know how many of the good Rocky guys we had gotten. And let's not let any of that keep us from spending money on surface-to-air missiles. And so we started the Nike program, and we've discussed that on uh, on the program before. The Nike missiles were ground-based missiles that the idea was you put these missile bases around cities and shoot down incoming bombers to protect the great cities of Seattle and San Francisco and Los Angeles, not the lesser cities like Portland or Eureka. Wenatchee. Wenatchee. Those places were... were They exist mostly to be, and money was poured into their development mostly to make uh, uh, appealing targets for enemy missiles. Exactly. To keep them away from the real cities. But even as Nike missiles came online, um, and, and... they were working on a drone system even then called GAPA or GAPA, ground to air pilotless aircraft. So even then the idea of sending up an airplane full of explosives and flying it into your enemy existed. GAPA. Make airplanes pilotless again. Mm-hmm. Did, uh, did this ever fly? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They flew them, but, but. Again, spoiler alert, the Soviets never tried to bomb the United States. So Wenatchee is safe. We have no idea whether it would have worked or not. But but um they ended up building 265 Nike missile batteries, including one in Kingston, Washington, where I was um an infant, where I lived until I was three, three and a half. And where I sometimes buy ice cream when the ferry line is long. That's right. It's a nice little, it's a quaint little town. Can you visit the Nike? Uh, I think I've asked you this before. I can't, I don't know where it is. No, it's just right. It's just right there. You turn left after you go through the town and it was on the right. I think it's been redeveloped, the space. It, it was still a base of a kind when I lived there. Now it's a safe way. But even in the late 40s, it was recognized, oh, these Nike missiles are not going to cut it. And so the missile defense system went through several iterations in pretty short order. Nike became Ajax. Um, Ajax was the first anti-missile system that was, or I'm sorry, missile system that recognized that the danger was not going to be airplanes, but in fact was going to be missiles. Um, it, was because, a, it was a missile you could shoot at missiles? Yeah, because the Soviets realized, oh, we're not, we're not going to be able to maintain mutually assured destruction with these, you know, tuple of turboprop bombers. We're going we're gonna to put all our money into ICBMs. And so Ajax actually was the first one of these... Uh, missiles to actually have a nuclear warhead because the problem was and remains how do you get any kind of accuracy against something that's flying fast and high and with a nuclear warhead you don't need accuracy well you still needed accuracy because um the even exploding a nuke in the air it had to be pretty close to the missile that you were trying to shoot down to knock it out to knock it out right because it because the missile had to i don't know if you've ever played missile command but as you know the missile goes up and it explodes it, it makes that little circle it makes a circle and the and the missile you're trying to shoot down has to go into that circle so pretty tough 
actually still to aim it and have it be accurate. Ajax turned into Hercules. Um, Hercules turned into Zeus. Did the Cold War end because we ran out of Greek deities? Yeah, after after Zeus. I mean, where do you go from <laughs> Zeus? Right. Then they started calling it Spartan. They mm. stayed in the family, but yeah. it's a, we're going to move from Athens to Sparta. Yeah, it's a real it's a it's a knockdown, and then they just gave up entirely and started calling it Sentinel, and then Safeguard. For some reason, they got into the S. Maybe some names, maybe but. some left wing government took over Greece, and they were like, "Let's rename all, <laughs> all the missiles." King Constantine's been deposed again. Um, but all of this was happening, uh, during a period when we were doing a lot of nuclear bomb tests, the Soviets were, the French, the uh, United Kingdom, everybody was trying to get into the act. I mean, and by everybody, I mean the five countries that had nuclear weapons. Um, we were testing the bombs to see, and this is the Sarbama story and all the other, all, all the other, uh, Mutually assured destruction. Previously stories. on Omnibus. That's right. Um, there were the the United States did over a thousand tests between 1945 and 1992. Um, 92. But over 75% of those were underground tests. In 1963, there was a partial ban on nuclear tests that said no more airborne tests because people were afraid that that all piglets were going to be born with two heads. Um, that used to just be a fun thing that you saw at a county fair. But when people were like, wait a minute, if every pig has It's not two fun heads, when it's every pig in southern Utah. That's right. It's not fun. USSR had over 700 nuke tests. For some reason, the UK... Did they do it underground or were they just out in Siberia? Both, both. Hmm. Um, because they, they signed on to the 63 treaty. All oh, right. Uh, the UK, for some reason, felt like it needed 45 of its own tests, even though we probably could have shared those files with them. And then, <laughs> hilariously, France France needed 210 nuke tests of their own. Um, I like how they did like six times, five times as many as England. Yeah, they just, you know, they've got a lot to prove. They've got a real chip on their shoulder. Um, anyway, so the United States, as part of its... Um, it's decades long project to come up with a way to shoot down enemy missiles. This was like a, this was like a, like a super fascination that the American military had, um, that they were going to develop a thing that was going to neutralize the threat, neutralize the, the weapons of mass destruction. The technology is not there, but if Congress gives us a hundred million right. more dollars, and there was a weird there was com- competition between the Air Force and Army, um, which there always was and still is, but the Air Force was pro missiles was making ICBMs. The Army was trying to shoot down enemy ICBMs. But not the, they weren't trying to shoot down each other's ICBMs. No, but the but the Air Force really believed in mutually assured destruction and the army was trying to undermine it. And so it was, you know, an inter-service kind of uh back and forth. There was a, you know, this was in Congress, right? Where are you going to put your 100 million dollars this week? It wasn't also on the football field? It was also on the football, <laughs> although that's Army Navy. Yeah, Air Force did not really uh, Nobody could not really hang. Force. So Let's fast forward through all the Spartans and Sentinels to uh, the late 60s. Uh, let's let, wait. 
no, no, no. Let's go only as far as the mid sixties. Um, we've passed the, uh, partial test ban treaty and we've decided we still have nukes to test and we want to, but we have to test them underground. And in order to shoot down enemy missiles now, we've developed a new, or we're developing a new technology. When I say we, I mean the, you keep saying we, the gosh, darn United States of gosh, darn America. Not you. You were not in the room with a chalkboard. I was not there, but I want to just make clear that our friends in New Zealand weren't there either. They should say we, they should say you, they should say y'all Americans. I thought you meant we, the free world and you would, you would oh. include the Commonwealth. Okay. So that's what I mean. Yeah. We, except the, the Britain was world. doing its own tests. So yeah, but they were just doing those tests to keep, you know, to save face. And France was doing it just because de Gaulle. <laughs> Ken, you know, normally you and I banter uh, through our advertisements, but this time I want you to just sit down and shut up while I tell you about Shopify. Shopify is more than a store. Connect with your customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether your thing is vintage teas or recipes for ghee, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. Now, I know you want to interrupt me, Ken, but wait. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe. Discover new customers and grow the following that keeps them coming back. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted, so your business keeps growing from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across all social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify's got you every step of the way. It's how every minute new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you will too. Ken, wait. Before you interject, Shopify makes selling simple so you can put yourself and your ideas out there whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify makes your success possible. When you're ready to launch your thing into the spotlight, Ken, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform backing millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Go on, Ken, try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com omnibus, all lowercase omnibus. Ken. Go to shopify.com slash omnibus, all lowercase, to start selling online now. That's shopify.com slash omnibus. But the new idea was rather than shoot down the, uh, the enemy missile by, um, by trying to capture it within your fireball, the new idea was, no, 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 send the missile up higher, up into the very upper atmosphere, because that's where the new ICBMs were going to, way, way up high. Okay. They were they were delivering the the they they were using this MERV technology, which is they would they would actually one missile would be carrying a half a dozen or more warheads that then would split off and they would it'd be impossible to uh, intercept because they're you multiple know, targets. Although really hard, as hard as it is to shoot those down, it's just as hard to get those to land anywhere reliably. Oh, is that true? Yeah, I mean. You know, you kind of, they're not each guided. No, well, they, but you know, ish. It also must've been hard for people named Merv at that time. Yeah. I mean, Merv Griffin thinks no one can make fun of my name. And then suddenly look at you. 
Look at you. Ineffective uh, nuclear bomb. Misspelled. But the new idea was send those missiles, send these American missiles higher. And the other missiles will feel bad about themselves and give up. Here's why they're going to feel bad about themselves. Because rather than destroying them with a big fireball, we're going to start destroying them with X-rays. Oh. Because up in the, the upper atmosphere, the X-rays can burn off the, the protective coating on warheads and then they'll burn up on reentry. So it just it was, the idea is that somehow it blasts you with a beam of X-rays. Yeah. And is that tech that existed or exists? Well, if you ex- explode a bomb up in the upper atmosphere where there's no air, really, to and, speak you, of. and you don't take, because bombs that were exploding lower in the atmosphere were designed to not shoot X-rays out because what X-rays would do is they would blank out the radar. Uh. You wouldn't be able to see what was happening. Um, so, you know, the, the, the explosive material was encased in lead or other, um, you know, other elements that would reduce the X-ray signature. These ones that we were now going to send really high, we were going to accentuate the X-rays. We're going to accentuate the positive. We're going to eliminate the negative. And so in, they replaced lead with like, like gold or other elements that um, in, the, in the fission process made a big burst of X-rays. I see. So the X-rays aren't being beamed. They're just a natural production of the explosion. Yeah. The X-rays are, are way up high, and it's a combination of what happens in an explosion that's in that upper atmosphere and also kind of the, the composition of the bomb. So we needed to test that bomb, but we could no longer test it in the atmosphere, even the upper atmosphere. And those were fairly big bombs. No, not Zarbama size, only five megatons, but five megatons is still five more than one megaton, wow. which is already a, it's probably a, four more than one megaton. It's four more than one megaton. It's five, five times, times uh, I see what you're saying. Uh, the meg- uh, one megaton, which is already a megaton. When you think about it, that's a lot of tons. It is. It's like, it's, a, it's like a million tons. It's a lot of tons. So it was determined that we needed to test it underground. And in Nevada, it was, uh, there was a lot of, by, by the mid-60s, there was a lot of agitation and protest against nuclear testing um people were worried about it it must have been low-hanging fruit for the no nukes movement you know for non-nuclear proliferation people to be like and they're testing it near your homes that must have been a foothold where on a non-ideological hawk's dove spectrum you could get people worried about nukes yeah and the nukes uh the no nuke movement was new it was a new no nuke movement but the the uh the nuke testers decided, you know, we, we, we'd blown up all the atolls in the South Pacific, although that's where France continued. They had more atolls, so that's where they were blowing up their so bombs. They, they had this most beautiful part of the world, yeah, beautiful quarries, and they could just blow them all up. Let's just turn it all into black glass. We'll turn it all into onyx. And, um, and if there are ever white walkers that appear in the South Pacific. Until Mitterrand appeared to save us. So what the United States government, searching around for a place to test its bombs, um, they 
they alighted upon the far Aleutian Islands in the great state of Alaska. Ah. No one out there, really, although these islands had had Aleut populations over the centuries. Most of them had no uh, constant habitation. Um, They'd been tussled over between the United States and Japan during World War II, famously the Japanese, that's the one place where the Japanese invaded the, con- you know, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the, the United States territory. Um, and so a lot of airstrips were, were kind of plowed into the inhospitable ground out there as part of a, a World War II strategy. It's close to Russia. It is. Is this a, a, a feature or a bug if you're testing your nukes? Do we like that it's uh, just, you know, a few hundred miles away from Russian airspace? Well, like I say, there were a lot of opportunities for us to rattle our sabers over there. Mm-hmm. And um, we we passed on a lot of those opportunities. This did not seem to be related to, like, let's have this... Um, Let's have this as close to Russia as possible, like f- like flying over their territory, and we're gonna we're gonna set off some bombs under the ground over here and see how they like it. But there was a lot of concern about underground testing in Alaska because just the year before, 1964, the great earthquake of 1964 had unleashed unfathomable destruction tsunami it's like one of the one or two worst in recorded history yeah. right nine point something and at the time there was a there was a big question whether or not exploding nukes deep underground was going to be sufficient to trigger motion in tectonic plates and if you think about it it sounds pretty logical um we didn't understand plate tectonics very well at the time and uh, nuclear bombs were the biggest thing that we'd ever seen. And it seemed like the, the, what did trigger earthquakes was fairly inscrutable, unknowable to us. Right. And if we're down there monkeying around. Well, I mean, even with today's science, my layperson's idea is I don't know what size nuke will start an earthquake. Right. And, at the time, even more, uh, people didn't know. And it was part of the resistance to exploding bombs in Nevada. Um, the government ended up doing research because they'd blown up so many bombs in Nevada. And they had seismic monitoring in California. Right. And they, uh, they fed all of that into their punch cards, trying to see if there was any evidence to show that setting off bombs you know created or were were related in any way to earthquakes and it was determined no there was no connection when you set off a a nuke it registered as an earthquake well like a a sufficiently rowdy seahawks crowd also registers as an earthquake right but this was a problem in monitoring compliance with the anti-nuke Oh, testing treaty because you couldn't tell what was an earthquake and what was a test and what was a, what what kept there from being a comprehensive nuke ban tr- 
treaty in the 60s was uh, monitoring. The Soviets did not want any Western monitors uh, sort of— On site. Yeah, on site, trying, you know, determining what was happening um, and— you know, but what about that old Russian proverb, trust but verify? Trust but verify, right. That they didn't they only they wanted them to do it. It was a big it was a big part of of um the justification for not signing on to the whole hog. And I think not just between America and Russia, but also other countries too. You want to maintain some sort of territorial territorial integrity. This was so- the sovereignty problem. and secrecy. Yeah, this was the problem with WMDs in Iraq. Yep. Um, and so the United States trying to determine if the Soviets were in compliance were also trying to figure out, now, how do we tell the difference between a four-point earthquake that's actually a bomb going off and a four-point earthquake that's just an earthquake? Uh, and this was surprisingly hard to do. When the government proposed doing underground testing in Alaska as, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the, the, Ala- the Alaska earthquake of 64, there became a, it was, it was an inciting um, moment in a groundswell of anti-nuke testing because the, the presumption was that uh, if this wasn't sufficient to, trigger a massive tsunami it wasn't worth monkeying around and that was the justification for protesting the giant collider in switzerland or for for making a nuclear bomb in the first place or a new you know trying to harness a nuclear reaction what if this cascades and the whole world turns into a black hole what was, was the opposition coming from alaska was this like a regional thing or was this just everywhere no it was nationwide and um and it actually spawned a very early it 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 coalesced a kind of uh you know the the hippie protest movement against the war in Vietnam and the civil rights movement had together kind of begun the 60s era of mass protest but this was also the silent spring uh Rachel Carson the the dawn of environmental awareness yeah and all of that was was swirling around and and was a kind of nascent environmental movement and anti nuke testing featured prominently in it as it uh, as it started to form and decide what its ideology was. This and I'm saying it, but it is you know it it is the movement yep. and the movement that we still see and, and recognize today. So much so that it spawned uh, a series of protests at the U.S.-Canadian border. From Canadians? From a combination of Canadians and Americans. Uh, Canadians in, are like, why don't you keep those tests in Nevada? In much ni- further from us. In 19, they probably would have said Nevada. Nevada, that's right. In 1969, over 7,000 people blocked the border right up here at Vancouver. <laughs> um in protest of this, these tests in Alaska, they carried signs that said, it's your fault if our fault goes. Meaning? The, the 
Seismic fault. Seismic fault. Right. The geologic fault. Uh, the American government was not convinced by 7,000 hippies at the Canadian border. In 1965, they, they did fire um, the first underground test on Amchitka Island, which is out in the Aleutians. It was a small test that was in preparation for a larger test. So some of these nuke tests were nuke tests to determine whether it was safe to do a nuke test. Uh, and so the small, the first one was called the long shot test, and it was paving the way for the Milro test, which was a one kiloton, or I'm sorry, a one megaton test. Do you start with a smaller payload or do you start with no warhead at all or no a smaller i mean you don't want to start with no warhead you want to get in there and get get cracking uh but the big the the 1969 test and the one that that spawned those protests the milro test was was a one megaton test it was a it was a big um it was a big explosion it did not create a tsunami it did not spark an earthquake um, but that did not slow the protest movement, as you know from witnessing protest movements in our own time. Um, just because the thing you're protesting, like, for instance, genetically modified foods or chlorine in the water or fluoride or uh, vaccines or whatever it is, the evidence doesn't necessarily stop the movement. Well, can I well, can I ask at this point? Is this something you're going to get to? Like, do we now know whether or not you could cause underground testing could cause seismic activity? Geologists at the time were pretty darn convinced that it wouldn't. Um, We'd say ninety six, ninety seven percent, somewhere in there between ninety, depending and on the breaks, ninety four percent sure <laughs> that it's not going to set off. Um, a giant earthquake. And I think that's probably... The state of the science today? Yeah, I mean, I think because we've set off a lot of big explosions and done a lot of uh, geotechnical work, and it hasn't really sparked earthquakes, but fracking... Oh, yeah. Uh, that's did, funny that bats more. That turns out to have a bigger footprint. Yeah, I mean, what, what, uh, what an underground nuke test is, is one big boom that creates a kind of, in most cases, an underground cavity that then somewhat collapses, um, whereas fracking, you know, it puts all this water underground and creates this building pressure meant to force oil up, but also... Forces everything. Yeah, and and there is some... I mean, people that are against fracking would say that it's creating seismic conditions... Dangerous seismic conditions all the time. I don't know if you trust USGS.gov, those hacks. <laughs> what do they say? They say that in every case that um, a nuclear explosion has caused an earthquake, it's been smaller in magnitude than the explosion itself. Yeah. So well, you do get... Every one of them creates an earthquake in its moments. Right, but, but some create some cause aftershocks. Aftershocks. But, but those are all smaller than the actual boom. Right. Nothing, nothing appears to cascade or domino. Right. There's not been a... There's not been a snowballing and, and even weeks later i mean you know when earthquakes do happen in california and are monitored there's no doesn't seem to be any causal connection anyway in this case uh 
the having done the the Milrow test, they now start drilling deep under Amchatka Island or Amchitka Island. I'm sorry, um, uninhabited island. I assume an un- uninhabited Some, island. You're not annoying anybody, but puffins, puffins, tons and tons of puffins, Arctic and terns and uh, ferns, a lot of ferns, terns and ferns. Uh, they dig down a shaft over you know close to 2000 meters underground and it's funny because the the Aleutian uh pass there the Aleutian the 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 ocean the strait the strait is really at its deepest point there about 6000 feet or 1800 meters underwater so they're digging down they're digging down right to what would be the seabed you know if it if it exploded out right it would be in the in the ocean and there's a there's also consideration about about leaching uh radioactivity into the ocean i'm looking at the cross section of the canakin site and it looks like a caramel apple that's fun i didn't realize all these underground tests look like delicious uh candy apples they they dug big big um you know six foot wide tunnels down there and put 400 tons worth of equipment underground. They cased it all in steel. They're measuring all the things they have to measure. They're X-ray emission and so forth. They want to know, they want to know, they're trying to get a lot of information out of this. And in fact, the, the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, James Schlesinger, actually took his family, his wife and daughter, strapped them to the bomb and, and took them up there to, to demonstrate to everyone, uh, no, no, is. no, this is very safe. I'm, I'm willing to risk even my family. <laughs> uh, the bomb exploded. It went off kind of without a hitch. If you look at their... Killed Schlesinger's wife and kids. It, killed, it, it uh, displaced a lot of puffin. <laughs> no, if you look, I watched a film that's from the time, and you think about those 1950s uh, sort of short films about nuclear bombs where there's a a dry narrator saying, and at 7.52 p.m., and the, the footage is all grainy. Well, they were still making those as late as the 1970s. Wow. There's Are they one, in color now, finally? It was color, but it was... Is it, it was in around? Same sort of scratchy, <laughs> dull-voiced. Um, and when the bomb went off, the ground in the area right around the explosion, uh, they, they talk about it as though it ain't no thing. Uh, it The whole ground... The island like raised up twenty feet. <laughs> the island jumps twenty and, feet, and then went down. And I think later on, even subsided into a kind of not not a complete pit, but you know, did dropped. the trees all pop out and then land like in a Popeye cartoon? Well, what's nice about this is there are no trees. Uh, yeah, that's in, the beauty in of Alaska, Chitka Island. Um, it caused some landslides, uh, but no tsunami, no no plates. Take that, take that, hippies. That's right. Take that, hippies. Go back to Blaine. Well, what the hippies did um, during this period, there was, as I say, a lot of, um, it, it wasn't naturally, it, does, it, w- it wouldn't seem now um, so hard to make the connection between what became the cause celebs, the kind of animating uh, ideologies and theories and and bete noirs of the left, there wasn't a natural connection between um, protests against deforestation and the civil rights movement, for instance. 
And in fact, there was a lot of tension between these different movements in American left culture, uh, exemplified by uh, the question, like, why would somebody in Harlem care about right. the moonshot? It's just the axis of which of these really needs our attention first. Yeah. Who cares about a spotted owl when there's no food in uh, the housing projects? Yes. Um and so let's take a uh, let's take a little sidestep to meet Irving and Dorothy Strasmich, who were both East Coast intellectual Jews, who met in uh, in the context of a sort of World War II era socialist, liberal, anti-war, civil rights mm-hmm. context. Um, Somewhere back east? Yeah. Uh, uh, Irving went to Brown. He got uh, an advanced degree at Yale. He he uh, taught himself or started to learn Mandarin in the 1930s because he believed that it was the language of the future. Ah. Um, he wasn't wrong. He was just early. That's right. He and Dorothy, after they were married, they spent their wedding night at an NAACP dinner. <laughs> uh, and by 1961, they moved to New Zealand. They converted from Judaism to become Quakers because of Quakers' anti-war vibe. That whole Judaism to Quaker pipeline. That's right. And as Quakers, they changed their last name from Strasmich to Stowe. Is that required in Quaker? No. In Quaker conversion? But I think it Please, was— Please, could you sound a little less ethnic? Yeah, not so Jewish. Uh, no, in honor of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Mm-hmm. Uh, they moved to, emigrated to New Zealand. I didn't know you had to pick like a spirit transcendentalist you when you become a Quaker. You do. And and Qua- we'll, we'll see there's another Quaker in this story. By 1966, they had moved to Canada and they started, um, and they were active in this, the dawn of the environmental movement in this new context of it being connected to. To peace and anti-nuke. That's right. right. And so the Stowe's uh, protested that that um, the first shot, the um, not the first one, but the Milrow test, mm-hmm. the, the first big one. They started a, a committee called the "Don't Make a Wave" committee. Literally, don't make like a tidal wave. That's right, because people remember the tsunami from the earthquake. Don't make waves. Um, they uh, they were behind the big protests that blocked the U.S. Canada border, they, in some version of their uh, of their movement, coined the "It's your fault if our fault goes," and they came up with the idea that they were going to actually sail up to uh, Amchitka in a boat and disrupt the protest. Dis- I'm sorry. Disrupt the test. Disrupt the test. They were going to sail up there, and they were going to make it impossible to set off this nuke because they were going to be a bunch of hippies in a boat. It's risky. And there was precedent for it. In the 50s, a former U.S. Navy commander by the name of Albert Bigelow, who also was a converted Quaker, had a ship called the Golden Rule built <laughs> And he set off to Hawaii to go down to the Marshall Islands and disrupt the 
above ground atmospheric nuke tests that were happening in the 50s. This is just some unrelated Quaker. This was this was long before, right? This is a decade earlier. He was he he conceived of this like I'm going to sail a boat down there and make it impossible for them to set off these bombs. And the golden rule was the first the golden rule of these You uh, wouldn't want me to set off a nuke in your atoll. Exactly. Therefore, he who has the golden rule makes the rules. <laughs> so Albert, Albert Bigelow sets off and he he publicizes his project that he's going to go down there he's going to sail into the nuke testing zone and he's going to shut the whole thing down cuz by 58 people were genuinely concerned about about all the radiation in the atmosphere he publicized it enough that by the time he got to Hawaii he was arrested and his <laughs> ship was impounded there's a fine line between <laughs> you know getting the word out and not getting arrested That's in right. Hawaii uh there was no way for him to avoid being grounded. And so he was, uh, when he was in jail there in the, in Honolulu, he had made enough of a stink that he had inspired other people. And an, uh, another group, I'm not, I'm not sure hundred percent whether they were Quakers or not, took a different boat, christened it the Phoenix of Hiroshima. Wow. And actually managed wow. to sail it. They didn't have the Quakers didn't have to go so hard. <laughs> no. Phoenix of Hiroshima. The Phoenix of Hiroshima. We would like to inherit the mantle of uh of that atrocity done to a different country. They actually managed to make it to Bikini Atoll, uh, where they were arrested and imprisoned and their boat was was uh, impounded. And hopefully renamed. The golden rule exists to this day. Um, I'm going to rent it. I'm going to I'm going to do a booze cruise on the Golden Rule. It, it is still an environmentalist uh, activist boat, like a Rainbow Warrior kind of yeah, a thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's moored in Humboldt County, if you can believe it. So yeah, you could probably go down there and say, "Hey, I'm Television's Ken Jennings. Can I rent uh, the Golden Rule for a long weekend?" I mean, there's not a lot of nuke tests anymore, so I'm sure they have open dates. Yeah, that's right. Well, I don't know. Are there not? We'll, we'll find out. I mean, it seems like, honestly, most things you would want to protest environmentally happen on land. It's, it's odd that we know about so many of these boats, but nobody has like a famous um, truck, say, that, oh, takes, that takes them to a non-aquatic environmental protest. Yeah, right. I mean, I guess there's a, there are trucker convoys now that, that uh, ineffectually drive around shutting down bridges. Yeah, it's a little different. But, you know, what, what about that Rothschild kid that, that built a boat out of, of soda pop bottles and floated out to, um, to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, raising awareness? Yeah, I think boats. he's mostly raising awareness, right? <laughs> boats are really overrepresented yeah, they in, are. The, uh, in the environmental activism world vis-a-vis other forms of transit. So Bigelow was influential on the, the, the Stowe's, and they— Decided they were going to head up there in a boat and disrupt this. Let's save the earth with a boat, they That's said, right. as so many others had and will have. Um, and as they were as they were at this uh, Don't Make a Wave committee and they were coming up with this scheme to get a boat, you know, at the time it was a popular, well, even now, a popular greeting, a popular way of saying hello and goodbye it's kind of a aloha. Oh, it's kind of an aloha, um, but it was peace, right? You would say peace. Oh, I see. Um, now I think it's morphed into peace out, but 
but it it started as peace. I don't think I would ever use peace as a hello. Imagine walk, imagine walking into a room being like peace. You've never been to a rainbow gathering. I mean, if I said shalom or salam, it works. But that's the thing, peace, right? And it is. It's just the same as shalom and salam. I think it got to be such peace. a good goodbye that it's no longer a very useful hello. But at the time, it was a hello goodbye. Hello again, down, down, down. Peace. So, so what did they do? They they uh, put well, up a sign. The the uh, uh, possibly apocryphal story is that as Irving Stowe was leaving one of these meetings, he said peace, and one of his compatriots, Bill Darnell, replied in the in the one upsmanship of all liberal meetings, <laughs> said let's make it a green peace. Oh, wait. So that whole thing of that whole thing of naming Greenpeace is just kind of trying to performatively shame another liberal for not being quite, not, uh, not having quite woken up a, uh, a sign off. That's right. It's not, look, man, it's not just peace. It's green peace. <laughs> well, Irving liked that so much that they named the boat Greenpeace. Hey. And, uh, the boat was not, uh, effective in, um, in stopping the explosion, the the Coast Guard hard, hard to see how it would be. Coast Guard held them off, according to Irving. Uh, the Coast Guard sent the Coast Guard sailors uh, sent him a nice note saying <laughs> that they that that many of them agreed. I don't. The note didn't survive, but um, the fact that they were not able to stop the protest did not dissuade them from. Uh, Beginning this project of active sure. engagement on the ground, boots on the ground protest against the things that that they, they didn't want to see. Even though this test failed, they found out the Coast Guard's a little bit pink. That's right. They um they got a second ship. They called it the Greenpeace Two T O O exclamation oh. point the Greenpeace Two. And in 1972, they chartered their new organization, Greenpeace, name for the boat. Named for the boat, which was named for the one-upsmanship. The funny thing is they now have iconic boats that are not named for the organization that was named for the boat. Now— They've still got rainbow warriors out plying the waves. Green, Greenpeace has over 26 regional organizations around the world, and uh, they have expanded their purview to include climate change, deforestation, overfishing, whaling, a genetically modified fruits and vegetables. I feel like when I was a kid, they were the— environmental organization on the tip of people's tongues, whether you were praising the movement or shaking your fists. Yeah, they were. Um, they were good at grabbing headlines. Sierra Club was the environmental group for people that didn't want to chain themselves to tractors. Yeah. And then Earth First Those guys. were the people that thought Greenpeace was too wimpy. And we want to put um, rebar in trees so that it springs out and yeah. takes off a lumberjack's head if we can. You no, know, Earth No nice notes to the Coast Guard from them. Earth First was doing things like burning down labs and and um, no compromise in defense of Mother Earth. So it all traces back to, well, basically the fact that anti-aircraft fire is inefficient. Um, that now we would not have Greenpeace if not for uh, we would not have Greenpeace if if not for if not for the Blitz and for um, Nike, Ajax, Hercules, Zeus, Spartan. Nike X, I forgot to mention Nike X, which was like, hey, let's take it back to our roots. And then Sentinel, Safeguard, uh, and the Ronald Reagan era particle beam. 
I feel like the discourse is right now for some, you know, ideologically uh, incoherent Kristen Cinema type to applaud the nuclear movement for producing Greenpeace. You know, in the same way that people praise the space program for giving us cellophane or whatever. Now it's time to say, if not for missile defense, we never would have had the anti-whaling crusaders of Greenpeace. Well, what's interesting about Greenpeace is, in the same way that former Seattle mayor Mike McGinn does not believe that there should be really any compromise, not in defense of Mother Earth, but any compromise. Defense of bike lanes? Yeah, in letting, uh, in paving the roads or letting cars have any role in the city. Greenpeace is anti-nuclear power. And the the environmental movement spent decades being anti-nuclear power because it was polluting and unsafe. Which was an oopsie, it turns out. Well, now there's pushback. Wait a minute, that was our path to clean energy and climate change is the bigger problem. Yeah. And if we can make safe, small-scale... Yeah, figuring out how to store plutonium actually is much easier than getting however many tons of carbon out of the air. Right. Greenpeace still maintains that there is... Um, that there is a way to counter carbon neutrality or better um, without using nukes. They still feel like nuke power is. And they the may wrong be right because now other tech is starting to rival nuclear. But there was fifty years when it didn't. I yeah. mean, I mean, we're speaking to a far future audience for whom this is a very real concern. How do you make sure you keep up the level of technology required to sequester your nuclear waste for, you know, however long, whatever it's. 60 million years or whatever. Well, you know, they just throw a bunch of banana peels into the back of their uh, back of their DeLorean and they can travel through time. They've evolved to thrive on it. They're they're actively working out ways of getting around our nuclear waste safeguards cuz you know, that's they yeah, they power their homes with our low-level uh medical waste and stuff. Yeah, that's the thing. Well, they're they're all, you know, they're just laughing cuz they're like, "All you have to do is squeeze the plutonium a little harder." And all of the all the bad stuff is out of it. We didn't know. We were products of our time. No, it's going to be fusion, Ken. That's going to be the secret. Fusion. Fusion. Someday. We're not on pace. And that concludes Kanakin, entry 180.1S0219, certificate number 53211 in the omnibus. As always, we are legally required by many jurisdictions, including the European Union, to remind you that we can be found online at Omnibus Project, uh, respectively at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Please don't message John. He really shouldn't be on social media. But I, but I have plenty of time to kill. <laughs> please please, uh, please uh, troll me, and I will immediately disproportionately reply because of my abundance of free time. Uh, you can uh, send us things to... Or you can send us email to the omnibusproject at gmail.com. You can send us physical items to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington. What, what, what? Do you have a little knife on your, on your keys? I do. I have a Swiss Army knife. Let's see it. I have the weird kind that has tweezers and a pen. Yeah. Because I find I need those two things so much more than... What's usually where the pen is? Uh, uh, toothpick. Toothpick, exactly. I don't need a toothpick. Well, show me the pen. It's a little ballpoint nib... Because oh, right? I have the that I am the one with the toothpick. Oh, oh! So the knife is the pen. What's on that side usually? The toothpick. Oh, okay. That's what I'm saying. 
does it always have the tweezers over here? Yeah, yeah then the tweezers are the yes, other side. Yes, but I find that but it doesn't come in as many varieties because people, in, unaccountably, they want the toothpick instead of the pen. So you have fewer options with this one? I'd rather not have the tweezers. I'd rather have toothpick pen. I use the pen more than the tweezers, but I think I'd use the tweezers more than I'd use the toothpick. What do you use the do you tweezers? Still, do you still pick your teeth? I, I pick my teeth all day. I, I have toothpicks all over. I just floss. Is that the, is that the problem? Well, I, have, I need a knife that has a huge roll of floss in the middle. I have a, uh, like, well, it's not exactly a bridge, but it's a place where my teeth are kind of right. glued together and I can't use floss. I'm sorry if that was ableist to say that you should not have a toothpick knife. You should totally have a toothpick knife. Thank you. It's my privilege that I don't need it one, is. and I need, it's time that I recognize that. It is. You got in a lot fewer fistfights than I did when you were younger. <laughs> Stefan uh, sent us uh, Christmas ornaments. Yay! Are, uh, is it anything pooping? <laughs> these are, um, wow, these are ornaments of the design he made for friends and family, so they don't request, they don't... Um, Reference omnibus specifically, but they are pretty great. Check we are out. friends and family. Oh, they have a battery. It's a Christmas tree shape stenciled out of a uh, an oh. actual circuit board. And what does it do? Well, I need to. You need to take away oh, the yeah. take away the blue thing over the double A and press the button. Oh, they light up. And, oh, they have multiple modes. Mine does not light up. They flash. Oh, you have to turn the switch on. You see the switch down at the tree stump. Oh, there it is. It's a tiny little switch on the stump. <gasps> oh, now now push the button little, a couple of those times. Those are LEDs. It makes the star yellow and the garland red and green. Yeah, but push that button again. This is great. A variety, variety of um, soothing or merry, yeah. festive lighting. They flash different. They they do all the same flashing that the that the weird ones that that I hang on our tree at. Those are really great. Those are really great. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, what else can I open here? Oh, this. This is a Christmas letter. If you want to hear more about um, what Arthur, Noah, Helen, and Kathy are up to. Mm-hmm. Give us the overview. Mm, looks like some of them are in school. Oh, somebody published a book. <gasps> And what? has been busy this fall promoting it with um, radio and TV appearances. Well, that's a successful book, Kathy. Thank you. It's a big deal. But it's a nice little uh, cut, paper cut Christmas card. Uh, wishing us Happy New Year, many goods and cheese, and two Restore Hetch Hetchy bumper stickers. Oh, well done. Thank you so much, the Shronks. Thanks, the, the Shronks. That can't be right. That's not even Shronks. I'm trying to find out if it was more legible on the envelope, but I think I already threw away the envelope. You don't think that you could be named Shrunk? Ken Shrunk? Uh, I mean, I could, but I don't want to accuse anyone else of uh, of that. The shirt, the sh- it's definitely SCH. Let's just put it this way. Mar- uh, thank you to Arthur, Noah, Helen, Kathy, and Nathan, and possibly their Shrunk. parents. <laughs> the Shrunks, as I call them. Uh, the most important way you could support the show, although, you know, feel free to leave us reviews online, converse about us with fellow futurelings uh, on Facebook, evangelize to your friends. But the single biggest difference you could make, my friends, would be to go to patreon.com slash omnibus project and check out the remarkable array of perks available to our supporters, including everything from at the lowest level bonus episodes to at higher levels. Signed show notes, uh, uh, t-shirts, video greetings, the ability to suggest omnibus topics, 
Um, baby doll negligees. We will not send you. Wait, we're going to send them baby doll negligees? Oh. We will uh, send you a photo of us in baby doll negligees. Mm. Uh, that's at the what level? How much would money would someone have to give you for you to send them a picture of you in a baby doll nightgown? Would the baby doll nightgown go over my street clothes, or would I be wearing only the baby doll nightgown? You're wearing only the baby doll nightgown, but it is not sheer. Oh. Hmm. Um, at the $500 level, and you have to send me the baby doll nightgown. You supply the nightgown. Five, they have to give at the $500 level monthly for six months. Okay. But keep in mind, you're splitting that with me, and I don't have to send it. I don't have to send it. Oh. Well, no. You know what? I'll still do it. Okay. New five hundred level announce. You want to name this new tier? Um, what 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 do we call it? The uh, the, the Zarbama the, tier. The leg hair. Uh, the leg hair perverts. Yeah. Uh, if you want to give at the Zarbama tier for a mere three thousand dollars, <laughs> you can have a picture of John wearing a very short negligee, leaving little to the imagination, mm-hmm. but just enough to the imagination. Just enough that we do not get arrested. We should mention, by the way, that. Uh, this week's show was actually suggested by a Patreon donor. That's right. It was Morgan that wanted to hear about Kanakin. Morgan, thank you for the suggestion. You know, Morgan's my middle name. <gasps> it's a it's a uh, a Welsh name of uh, of some renown. Although as a first name, it tends to be used by blonde Hollywood actresses. Do you think all people named Morgan are equally interested in Alaska and nuclear testing? Yes. Uh, thank you for your support. This is a Patreon and not an OnlyFans. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we wish you many goods and cheese and hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.